In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold hi everybody welcome to another sunday night live episode of the peter Schiff show podcast and it wouldn't be a sunday night if the federal reserve and the government wasn't out there trying to find another buyer for yet another failed bank. This time I'm talking about First Republic Bank. I've been mentioning that bank on this podcast for a while. Well, on Friday after the close, the FDIC came in and closed down the bank, put it into receivership, and they are looking now on a Sunday night. I think they've been doing this all day. They're trying to find buyers for the bank, and they have several big banks that have stepped up. Of course, they want to cherry pick the assets, right? They don't want any of the problems. They just want all the good stuff and they want to, you know, buy that on the cheap and, you know, you don't blame them. But obviously the big banks are going to get bigger as they're buying up First Republic, which is a regional bank, but it's still a decent sized bank. You know, they got a lot of branches throughout the country uh, or actually, you know, I'm not really sure, you know, what states they're in, but, um, I, I read that they had, um, you know, quite a decent uh, 82 branches is how many they have. And, you know, I talked about the bank again on my last podcast, which I did on Wednesday. And on that day, the shares were down about 30 percent or 40 percent. And I pointed out that they were down now 97 percent from the 52 week high. 
But I also mentioned how dangerous it was to buy it because if it fell that last 3%, doesn't seem like a lot, right? Hey, it's already down 97%. What's another 3%? Well, if you buy it down 97% and it goes down another 3%, you lose 100%, which is probably what's going to happen to the people who bought it. Now, in fact, on Friday, before the news that the bank was going into receivership, it dropped another 43% on Friday. And we'll see what it opens tomorrow where it's going to be. I mean, it probably won't be at zero, but it will be below a buck, right? You know, it'll, it'll you know, pennies a share uh, on, on the stock. But meanwhile, they're trying to find buyers right now. And remember, I talked about the initial rescue plan for this bank because the first thing that happened is you had a bunch of major banks put up money. I think $30 billion in total, new deposits to save the bank. Why? Well, because everybody else was taking their money out. And I I mentioned at the time that these big banks were probably getting that money from the Fed. They were probably taking their underwater uh, treasuries, long-term treasuries, mortgage-backed securities. They were giving them to the Fed. And then they were taking that cash and depositing it over at First Republic Bank, where they can earn a higher yield, I guess. Than, I don't know. But that was also propping us First Republic Bank. But that wasn't enough because a lot of other money got sucked out because people are worried, right? They run on the bank. None of these banks can handle a run. Thanks to the Federal Reserve, thanks to the FDIC with the deposit insurance, the minute anybody does get scared, about the bank, the bank is finished. It's going to fail because none of these banks keep adequate reserves in case of a run because they all assume there won't be one because that's what the FDIC is for, to make sure there's no runs because the public knows, hey, my money is safe because it's got the FDIC. Well, it's not necessarily safe. So why take a chance? Yank your money out. And then the other thing is that rates have moved up a lot. First Republic is in no position to pay a competitive rate. Can't afford it. Why? It buried all of its money in, uh, you know, long-term low-yielding treasuries and mortgages. So it doesn't have the money. And so the entire banking system is a house of cards, you know, thanks to the U.S. government. And now that house of cards is collapsing one card at a time. But more are going to happen. A lot more banks. This is not the end of it. We're still early days in the 2023 financial crisis. And that's exactly what this is. Again, the media is reluctant to call this a financial crisis. Well, what is it? Banks keep failing. Aren't banks financial institutions? But no, they don't want to do it because they don't want to invoke the memory of 2008. They don't want anyone to think that what we're experiencing is another 2008. Now, In a way, they're right, because it's not another 2008. It's going to be way worse than 2008, but it is a financial crisis. And again, it's not just banks, right? The Fed screwed up everything that is a function of interest rates, right? Anything that is rate sensitive is all screwed up because rates were so low for so long. So it's not just the banking system, although the banks are, you know, right at the forefront of this. But you've got um, the automobile industry. How were people buying cars? Well, with loans. Well, the loans that were really low because of the interest rates. So the whole automotive market 
was propped up by cheap money. Well, that's collapsing. And of course, that's also got the banks involved because the banks are holding on to the paper, right? They're the ones that loaned out the money so people could overpay for cars that they couldn't afford. Housing, of course, everybody is buying homes with a mortgage. So the whole housing market uh, you know, was dysfunctional, dysfunctional rather, based on the Fed. The Fed screwed up the housing market. And you know, one of the other uh, areas that the Fed really screwed up was the government, government spending. How was it that the federal government was able to run these enormous deficits, right? We're having this big you know, debate now about the debt ceiling. The debt is 31.7 trillion, right? It's even above the ceiling because the ceiling was 31.5 and somehow we're already a couple hundred billion above the ceiling that hasn't even been raised yet. And you know, they're, they're, you know, they're doing uh, you know, sleight of hand with the budget. It's probably a lot bigger number now because they're, you know, they're cooking the books to try to keep the debt down until they officially raise the ceiling. And the Republicans only proposed raising it by one and a half trillion, which is nothing given the rate at which we're racking up debt. But how was it that we could run these huge deficits? How are we able to sustain a $31.7 trillion national debt? It's because interest rates were so low. If the Federal Reserve had not kept interest rates at zero for so long, had interest rates reflected the appropriate price of money that a free market would set, there is no way the government could have gotten away with this. Government could not be this big. Government could have spent could not have spent all this money because it couldn't have afforded to pay the interest on the debt. So the only reason that government got so big, that spending got so, you know, they were spending so much and the deficits got so large was because the Fed had rates down. Now, when the Fed lets rates go back up, everything that was built on a foundation of 0% crashes, including the government. The government is going to come crashing down if the Fed holds the line on fighting inflation because the government can't survive. We can't have these deficits and normal interest rates and fight inflation. So the government is going to be forced to downsize dramatically, make big cuts in government spending if the Fed is going to continue to fight inflation and keep rates up, which I don't think it's going to do because the Fed is going to choose to reverse course to stop banks from failing, to stop the auto industry from imploding, the housing industry, the government from slashing government spending, even corporate America. Corporate America is all levered up. What's going to happen over the next year or two as all this cheap money that they borrowed to, to buy back their overpriced stock, all the loans come due. What about all the junk bonds that are out there, all the companies that have survived on junk bonds? You know, now they still were paying maybe five or 6%. Maybe now they got to pay 12%, 13%. They can't afford that. The bankruptcies have already started. You know, I, I just read this article on Zero Hedge just before I uh, started this podcast that already year to date, this is the third worst year for major bankruptcies. We've had 70 major bankruptcies announced so far this year. You know, we're finished with uh, four months of the year. The other bad year was 2020, where in the first four months, we had 71. Now, you remember what was going on in the first four months 
of 2020. That was the COVID lockdowns. And so a lot of companies went bankrupt then because, you know, people couldn't leave their homes. And so people weren't spending money. So there was a lot of pressure. I'm sure this year is going to be way worse than 2021 because by the end of 2021, you know, those bankruptcies probably stopped. So I'm pretty sure that 2022 is going to be worse than 2020. But the the year that was worse still, the worst year since 2000, this is the third worst, was 2009. And there were even more bankruptcies there in the first four months of 2009. But that was the Great Recession of 2008, 2009, which ended at, you know, sometime in 2009. So we were in this great recession, and that was the last time, 2009, that a year began with as many major bankruptcies as this year. But we still have a lot more bankruptcies to come. I mean, if you think it's already bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to continue to get worse. Who knows? Maybe by the end of the year, we'll break the record, whatever it was, for all of 2009. Uh, nine with respect to major bankruptcies, because then we started to come out of that recession. We're just entering really this greater recession than the one that we had back then. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeletemecom gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. But, you know, another interesting thing that I wanted to point out, it was 10 months ago today. Obviously, it wasn't a Sunday, but it was June 30th, 2022, and this is April 30th. 2023. But 10 months ago, the Puerto Rican regulators, OSIF, put my bank into a receivership, which is exactly what the FDIC did with First Republic Bank on Friday. But here's the big difference. The FDIC is desperately trying to find somebody to buy this bank, right? They, you know, they, they, they want another bank to buy the bank. Why? Because they want to protect the depositors. They're trying to make sure that on Monday morning, everybody that has an account at First Republic Bank can get their money, that nobody's checks are going to bounce. That's what they are trying to do. Now, of course, you've got banks coming up and saying, oh, we'll buy, but nobody wants to buy the whole bank, right? Because the bank is insolvent. You'd have to accept all those liabilities. So it's hard to sell a bankrupt entity. So, of course, you've got people who want to buy the good parts, 
and they, they, they want to leave the bad stuff to the FDIC, which means to the taxpayer. Well, when my bank was put in a receivership, there was actually a company, right, Kenta, that had already offered to buy the bank. So they were there, a buyer. And instead of allowing this buyer to buy my bank, they put the bank in a receivership. The buyer was going to take the whole thing. They were going to assume all the liabilities, protect all the depositors, um, and inject another $7 million of capital on top of the capital that bank was, the bank already had. So why did they do that? Also, after they rejected the sale, the minute they put the bank in a receivership, a group of investors contacted the regulators, and then they contacted my lawyer, and they said, we want to buy that bank. Hold on. We want it. We want to take it out of receivership. We want the whole bank. We're going to operate it. And it was a very experienced team. In fact, one of the people who wanted to buy the bank was a former head of OSIP, the very agency that shut me down. The, one of the former heads of that agency wanted to buy my bank from me. And he had lots of other partners. A lot of other ex-OSIP people were part of this consortium. They had deep pockets from the U.S., so they wanted to buy the bank. So they had buyers lined up, and the, the Puerto Rican regulars turned them all away. They didn't want anybody to buy the bank. Think about the irony of that. They had what the FDIC is trying to get. But no, they wanted to leave the bank in receivership. Now, um, First Republic Bank is actually bankrupt. They actually don't have enough cash to cover all the deposits. In contrast, my bank wasn't bankrupt. I had millions in, in cash above what was owed to my depositors. Yet the irony of the way the world works the customers of this bankrupt financial institution, on Monday morning, they're going to get all their money, courtesy of the U.S. taxpayer. On the other hand, the customers of my bank have been waiting 10 months now, and they haven't gotten any of their money. Again, courtesy of the government. So because of the government, people that have their money at an insolvent bank are going to get all their money. But also because of the government, people who have their money at a solvent bank they're not getting any of their money either. Does this sound like capitalism, right, where the government decides, you know, which bank's customers get their money and which bank's customers don't? If the free market decided, then a lot of people at First Republic would have lost their money and nobody at my bank would have lost any money. In fact, they would have been able to get all their money out if they wanted it 10 months ago. Now, you might ask, well, why? Why, if you had, they had buyers for the bank, why didn't they let somebody buy the bank? I don't know. you got to ask those questions. Nobody seems to want to ask those questions. I mean, I have some theories. Now, you know, one of the things was the company, Kinta, that was going to buy the bank is now publicly traded in the U.S. And when they announced the, the, uh, you know, the action to seize the bank, and they, they issued this uh, cease and desist to tell the bank to stop functioning, right? You can't operate anymore. They, they, inside that cease and desist, they rejected the buy of the bank from Kenta. And in the cease and desist, they wrote that the reason that they turned down this buy and they're, they're putting the bank into bankruptcy, right, which inconvenienced the customers now for 10 months. Now, Osef obviously back then had no idea that 10 months later, the funds would still be tied up. 
But, you know, when you open up a can of worms, worms are going to come out. They probably thought the customer money would be tied up for maybe three months. But there was no reason to tie it up at all. They just could have let Kinta buy it, right? And then everybody could have withdrawn their money whenever they wanted. But they came out and they said, the reason we're not letting this company buy this bank is because we discovered that Peter Schiff, after the sale of this bank, is still going to have ties to the bank because he's going to own 4.15% of this company. And we can't have that. We can't have Peter Schiff own 4.15% of the company. Wait a minute. I owned 100% of the company before, so I can't own 4% of it. But they said that we never told them about that. That was the problem, that we tried to pull a fast one, that we told them that I would have no ties to the bank and that they just discovered, like recently, last minute, it buried in the fine print, that I was going to have 4.15%. And so because of that, they turned down uh, the transaction, which, of course, so all the depositors have to suffer because somebody supposedly made that risk misrepresentation, except that wasn't true. <laughs> because from day one, in October of 2021, I had a meeting with the OSIF commissioner and the CEO of Kinta and his chief in-house counsel, the bank's, in the bank's outside counsel, and maybe three other members of OSIF. And we all sat around a table and we explained the terms of the transaction to them, which was a stock deal that I was getting 130 shares of Kinta for my shares of the bank, you know, however many I had. They knew that. In fact, one of the things that the OSIF commissioner told me and everybody at that table that she liked best about the deal was that the, the, the company buying the, the bank was going to be publicly traded because she said, I like the idea of a second set of regulatory eyes on the bank, meaning not just OSIF regulating the bank, but the SEC because it was a public company. So she really liked it. She, she liked my 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 uh, had no problem with my 4% ownership. And in fact, we have all the written documents because we sent the commissioner the terms of the deal a week before we had the meeting. And then the day after the meeting, we sent them more information, emailed the commissioner directly, um, prominently discussing my 4% ownership, the structure, all that bold, top of the page, no way she could have missed it. In fact, she emailed back after she received the data about my ownership. Oh, thank you for the information. We got it. No questions, right? So they knew about it for nine months. And then they said, oh, this is the reason that we're not approving the sale. Now, we know that's not the reason because that wasn't true. Now, the question is, even if that was true, why did they turn down this other group that wanted to buy the bank? I mean, that was certainly better for the customers. And again, all these buyers, they didn't want to fire any of the workers. In fact, they, they wanted to hire more workers. Now, one of the things that OSIF commissioner said at this press conference that she said, well, the bank has a long history of noncompliance with certain things, which, again, wasn't true because we'd only been in Puerto Rico about four years. So that's not that long. But we didn't even have our first audit until nine months before she said we had a long history of noncompliance. So at most, we weren't complying for nine months, except we complied with everything they asked us to do. OSIF asked us to do a lot of stuff after that audit. And we did everything. I mean, it was an extensive job to do everything that they, they said we needed to fix, but we fixed it all. But the point is, even if the current team didn't comply, 
the new buyers were bringing in new people in addition. They weren't firing anybody at the bank. They were just hiring more people, more experienced people. It's going to be a whole new board, you know, all, all new top management. They already had a new president that was, you know, had quit her job at another bank. She was ready to start working. I mean, so what was the problem? I, I don't know. But again, the point is that the government in the U.S. desperately trying to save an insolvent bank to protect the customers, Puerto Rico regulators take a totally solvent bank and don't even allow. They're turning buyers away. They got them lined up. No, 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 we don't want any buyers when the, the U.S. government is doing everything they can on a Sunday night to try to find a buyer because you know they don't want any of these customers to lose access to their deposits for even one day. Yet the customers of my bank have lost access to their deposits for 10 months. And, you know, not without some financial hardship. I've gotten some emails. I feel very badly uh, that this has happened. There are some people that want to blame me for it. I mean, I had nothing to do with it. I was a shareholder of the bank. You know, some people, oh, well, it's your fault. You went, you, you, you sat down for that 60 Minutes interview. Well, I mean, I, I couldn't have made that connection. By the way, I didn't even know it was for 60 Minutes. When I sat down, they told me it was for the age. It was going to be on their website. They ended up putting it on 60 Minutes. And, of course, they told me they wanted to talk to me about the economy, about inflation, about gold. They never said anything about what they really wanted to talk about. They ambushed me with that. So had they been honest, I, I wouldn't have sat down because I don't do interviews about, about the bank. Because I, I, I don't, you know, I was a shareholder. I didn't really have much to say. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Anyway, want to move on, though, to some economic data that came out. Late last week, we got the first look at the Q1 GDP numbers, first quarter of 2023. The consensus estimate was 1.9%. And I've been talking about the estimates for Q1 GDP for a while on this podcast. And what I've consistently said was that the estimates were too high and that I would take the under on the over-under when it comes to Q1 GDP. And I would have won if I had placed such a wager because we did come in under, considerably under. The estimate for growth in Q1 was 1.1%. So way below the 1.9% that had been forecast, even further below the 2.6% which was the quarter that ended 2022. So quarter over quarter, we have a big slowdown 
in GDP growth. And in fact, the 1.1% for Q1, that is the lowest number since Q2 of last year, which was minus 0.6. And that was the second quarter where we had those two back-to-back -back quarters of negative GDP that everybody said wasn't really a recession, even though technically it was, they said it wasn't. Well, the quarter that we just had, this is the worst one since then. And I think there's a very good chance that we will be back in a negative GDP quarter by this quarter. The second quarter that has already started, there's a good chance that this quarter will be negative, and so will the quarter that follows, which means we're back in a technical recession again, if we have that, another two quarters of back-to-back -back falling GDP. Now, maybe they'll disregard that as well. Not really sure what it takes now for an official recession to be declared, but at some point they might have to do it. But I would argue that if we are in a recession again now, and if we were in one in the early part of 2022, I would argue that we've been in recession the whole time, that you can just throw out all these positive numbers as a bunch of noise. This is just one big recession that in fact is just the early stages of what we'll ultimately call a depression. But one of the worst parts about the, uh, the numbers that were contained in the GDP was not that GDP was so weak, but that inflation was so strong. The GDP numbers disappointed on the low side, but the inflation numbers disappointed on the high side. So the personal consumption expenditure, uh, that was up 4%. The expectation was to be up 3.7%. But what's more significant, I think, than the fact that it's above expectations, if you look at the fourth quarter of last year, the PCE was 3.9. So four is higher. Now, it's not a lot higher, but the direction is important because the Fed claims it's making progress on inflation. The PCE is its favorite way to measure it. And based on that, it's moving in the wrong direction. A whole quarter has gone by. We've had a couple of rate hikes. We're supposed to get another one, you know, uh, next month, you know, starting on Monday in May. But despite these rate hikes, which are supposedly going to stop inflation, inflation is getting worse. And in fact, if you strip out food and energy, which I guess is the favorite part of the Fed's favorite part, because they always like to strip out food and energy, right? Look at the core. The core PCE was up 4.9 against expectations of up 4.7. But last quarter, Q4 of 2022, the core PCE was up 4.4. Now we're 50 basis points hotter in the first quarter of this year. That is a big deal. That is a big move in the wrong direction. So we got weakening economy because growth is slowing, and we got strengthening inflation because the PCE numbers are going up, not down. Quarter over quarter, slower growth, faster inflation. The worst of both worlds, stagflation. Now, the markets really didn't react much. In fact, the stock market went up. Uh, gold didn't rally on this. In fact, gold's not even rallying tonight. One would have thought that based on the bankruptcy 
of First Republic announced Friday after the close that Sunday night we'd be getting a rally in the price of gold. But you would be wrong if you thought that because gold is down about eight bucks as I am recording this podcast. It's 1982 per ounce. So, you know, not too far away from 2000. And I don't expect it to fall much below 2000. And I think when people really start to think about this, they're going to buy gold. In fact, the data that came out uh, was positive for gold. Again, it was hotter than expected inflation numbers, which the market somehow looks at as being bearish for gold because it means the Fed's going to stay higher for longer, but they still don't get it. It means the Fed is losing the battle against inflation. And in fact, it will surrender. Inflation will win. And that is good for gold for the reasons I stated earlier in the podcast. They built this house of cards. They're not going to let it collapse. I mean, they're going to do everything they can to try to keep it from collapsing. And that means more inflation. That is all they can do. The economy is addicted to inflation. We need more inflation. And the Fed is going to make sure that that's exactly what the economy gets. Even as it's pretending that it wants to fight inflation, it is preparing for another massive dose of inflation. You know, the estimate, though, I want to point this out, for the Atlanta Fed now for Q2 is not a negative number. They're looking for 1.7. But a month or two ago, the Atlanta Fed was still looking for better than 3% for Q1, and they missed that by a mile at 1.1. So if they're looking for 1.7 now, there's a good chance that if they miss that by even less than they missed Q1, that it will be a negative number. But I also want to point out another number that a lot of people have been talking about, and they think that this shows that inflation is going away. And that is the contraction that is currently going on in M2, which is a broad measure of U.S. money supply. It's actually down now by 4.1% year over year. Now, that rarely happens in the United States. In fact, it hasn't happened during the lifetimes of just about anybody listening to my podcast. I mean, maybe there's a few people uh, that are that old that are, that are listening to my podcast. I don't know. But certainly in my lifetime, and I'm probably older than most of you, I haven't seen it. The last time we had a, a decline like this or a decline was 1933. And I don't have to remind you what was going on during 1933 we were in the Great Depression. So the last time we had a contraction year over year money supply, we were in the Great Depression. You know, Now, I mentioned earlier that we may, in fact, be in another depression right now, and the fact that money supply is declining could be a good sign because that tends to happen uh, in depressions. Not that a falling money supply is a bad thing, but in a depression, that might happen, and that it should happen in a depression. Money supply should go down. Uh, but the fact that it is going down is a sign that we're, you know, at least in a recession, if not a depression. Now, there's only been four years prior to this year, in the last 100, 150 years, that we've had this happen. So the time before 1933 was 1921. Now, there was a recession in 1921. It would have been a depression had the government done in 1921 
what it did in 1929. See, the reason no one ever heard of the 1921 depression was because we didn't have one because we, the government didn't make the mistakes that it made in the thirties. What the government did in 1921 was exactly what they say not to do. They cut government spending in a recession and there was no stimulus and no bailouts. And the cut in government spending basically relieved a burden on the economy and allowed the free market to prevent a depression because the stock market crashed. The initial collapse in GDP in 1921 was just as bad as 1929, except Hoover came in in 1929 with all the stimulus. You know, he was, you know, he did what, you know, we've been doing. And he basically wrote the, the failed playbook that we've been following. Nobody does what Coolidge did in 1921 because that worked. But that involved less government, not more. So nobody wants to try that. Now, I don't have any time on this podcast. Again, I kind of off track. That's a long story. It's a good story, but I can't tell it here. All I want to do is bring out that we did have a recession in 1921 when we had a, a decline in the um, uh, money supply. Now, the year before that, the, that it happened, was in 1893. They had a bit of a panic that year, um, and uh, so recession. Now, that predates the Fed, right? So you can't blame it on the Fed, but the money supply did contract, and it was a rough year. And the same thing in 1870. There was a contraction in the money supply. So we're experiencing something now that we don't normally experience unless something bad is happening. And the fact that we're experiencing it, something bad is happening, and that's one of the reasons we're experiencing it. Now, there are people that are going to say, well, doesn't that mean there's no more inflation? Because if inflation is defined as an expansion of the money supply, and I, I, that's what I say it is, if the money supply is now contracting, doesn't that mean we have deflation? And that is correct on, from that perspective that we have had a year now of slight deflation because you have to put that 4.1% contraction in context. In fact, I tweeted out the chart of M2. And if you look at how much it's gone up in the last few years, and then even the last 10, 20 years, this little decline looks tiny on that chart. And remember that prices respond to inflation with a lag. And so even if we've had a year of deflation, 20 years of massive inflation are still in the pipeline. So consumer prices still have a long way to rise to make up for all the inflation of the past. So for all the years that M2 was growing, we haven't caught up to that to get to the point where we've now had a slight decline. But here's the problem. That decline is going to be truncated because before too long, the Fed is going to reverse that decline in money supply. Money supply is going to ramp up when the Fed goes back to QE with a vengeance in order to prop up everything that's going to come collapsing down that I discussed and everything that it that it built on a foundation of cheap money is now in the process of collapsing and we would have a massive depression in order to, to clean up this mess. The Fed never allows the market to clean up its messes, not since the 1930s. That is the playbook. The problem is we've run out of road to kick the can down. We're now at the point where if we try to do that, we're on a new road to hyperinflation. 
So that's where we are now. The Fed is not going to allow this to continue. The monetary heroin is going to be reintroduced into the market. And so this deflation is not going to be allowed to continue. Now, that's what the market needs. We need healthy deflation. We need money supply to contract. Um, We need debts to default. We need companies that never should have been in business to fail. The entire economy needs to be restructured on a solid foundation. Uh, We need to get rid of all these imbalances that have been created by the Fed. I mean, think about it. Um, Loans are supposed to be a function of savings. You're supposed to borrow the money that other people are not spending. That's where uh, savings come from, underconsumption. That's what finances capital investment. We haven't done that. We've been financing uh, everything with inflation. We've just been printing money and loaning that out and spending that. But inflation is not a substitute for legitimate savings. And a lot of these investments that have been financed through inflation are unsustainable in the long run. If they're financed properly out of savings and our consumption, then they are sustainable and they can continue. But what we have now is a massive credit bubble that the Fed inflated. And now the air is coming out because rates have gone up and the Fed is saying it's going to continue to hike rates. And so this whole thing is going to implode until they cry uncle and reverse course. Now, while I'm speaking about the Fed, I want to uh, finish up the podcast by talking about some of the things that your own pal said on a prank call. Guess, you know, it's not on the telephone anymore. It's a prank, you know, Zoom call. You know, it's like somebody, you know, called him up and asked him if he has Prince Albert in a can or something. And, you know, he he doesn't realize that, that he's been pranked by somebody pretending to be Zelensky. Now, first of all, I didn't even know that the Fed gave out, you know, these uh, these calls, like where they gave basically economic analysis or policy updates like privately to the leaders of foreign countries. I mean, is it was it just Zelensky or could the leader of any country call up and have a private conversation with Powell? And one of the interesting things about this conversation is that he seemed to be more frank about the situation than he was with Congress. So he's basically being more honest with this fake Zelensky than he was uh, with the members of Congress. And of course, that was out in the open, right? Because he knows the cameras are on or, and people are at home watching. And so maybe he didn't want to be as honest as on this private uh, Zoom chat uh, where he was talking uh, with who he thought was, was Zelensky. And the whole thing was just like, you know, a uh, Elmer Fudd, you know, we got you on candid camera. A lot of people watching this probably don't remember, uh, uh, not Elmer Fudd. That was Funk. I mean, I can't even remember the guy's name. I'm confusing him with a cartoon character. But Candid Camera was a big show, you know, uh, back in, I think it was the 60s or 70s. I forget when it, when it, when it went off the air. But basically, that's what, uh, uh, what he got caught on. Um, but he's, you know, speaking frankly, and, you know, he's got this fake background on. You know, not like I've got, you know, an actual backdrop here. He, he had some kind of phony trees and stuff because you can see, you know, he moves around and, you know, you can see his, he's just superimposed on, uh, on on this image through, through. They have this thing in Zoom, 
right? So he doesn't have a, a studio like I do. He's just, you know, using his Zoom, but it, he didn't want anyone to see where he was. I wonder where, where, the, where he actually was sitting, you know? Uh, but so he had a, a, a phony Zoom backdrop and I've tried those. And, the, you know, that thing is you go like this and you don't really move directly so you can see what's going on. But I, I watched, it's hard to find the whole interview because if you go on YouTube and you, and you, and you, you know, Zelensky prank interview, you don't even see it. So maybe they're scrubbing it, right? They're not letting people see this thing. So I, I just saw bits and pieces of it. I wasn't able to find and Maybe it's out there somewhere, you know, you know, it's, it's just not easy to, to, to search it. But one of the things that he said um, was that he thought that a recession was equal in probability to just slow growth. So it was either or, like kind of 50-50. This fake interview happened in January. And when he was talking publicly, he wasn't thinking it was you know that good a chance that we would have um, a recession back then. Now, recently, the Fed has kind of moved to recession, mild recession anyway, as its base case. So the Fed believes we're going to have a mild recession. And as I said, they've never believed any recession. They've never forecast a recession, even the Great Recession that turned out to be the worst one since 2000, since the Great Depression. They didn't even forecast that even when they were in it. You know, in the middle of 2008, they still didn't have a recession in their forecast, even though they were in a recession at the time and had no idea that they were. Well, if they're forecasting one now, you better believe it's going to be horrific. I mean, they're saying it's mild because what else are they going to do? They're not going to say, yeah, we're going to have a horrible recession, probably going to be the worst one ever. There's no way they're going to say that. Even if they think that, there's no way they're going to say it. The fact that they're saying it's going to be mild, you better believe they think it's going to be awful. Because if they actually thought it was going to be mild, they would say we're not going to have one. They, they wouldn't even want to let that cat out of the bag. Hey, it's going to be a mild recession. Let's keep it quiet. Maybe it won't even happen, right? So they know it's going to be bad. So they just don't want to look like complete idiots. And, of course, they are complete idiots, but they just don't want to look like that. And so they're at least going to get out in front of it and say, well, you know, we assume there's going to be a mild recession. And then when it turns out to be not mild, at least they were forecasting a recession. But one of the other things that uh, that, that uh, Powell said, which I think is important because it demonstrates his lack of understanding of, of economics. And what he said was that his policy is designed to cool the economy, right? The economy is too hot. We need to cool it down, right? The growth is too hot. So I want to cool the economy with these rate hikes because a cool economy is going to cool off the labor market, right? We've got this hot labor market that needs to be cooled off. And if we can cool off the economy, which cools off the labor market, that's going to bring down inflation. That's what he thinks. That's what he told Zelensky, that inflation is somehow a byproduct of a hot economy and a hot labor market. And that's why we got inflation. No, that's not why we have inflation. We have inflation because the Fed created it, because they printed all this money, because the government ran all these deficits. Economic growth's got nothing to do with it. In fact, if anything, real economic growth brings prices down, not up. A strong labor market means labor is more productive, more productivity, more production, lower prices. And in fact, we don't even have a strong economy anymore. He was talking about this this quarter 
January of this year, we just got the GDP numbers, only 1.1%. I mean, is that a red-hot economy that you need to cool down? It doesn't seem too hot. Labor market? We have massive layoffs. Yes, we still have low unemployment, but we've had lots of layoffs uh, so far this year. Lots of bankruptcies. I mentioned this is a year. This is, you know, we've got all these bankruptcies. Uh, the third worst start since 2000. Bankrupt companies lay off workers. They don't hire workers. You know, they, they're getting rid of workers now. They're bankrupt. They don't need any workers. So we don't even have a strong labor market. Yet Powell wants to cool it off because he thinks that's going to bring down inflation. It's not. None of this stuff is going to bring down inflation because Powell doesn't even understand. If he's being honest with Zelensky, he is clueless about where inflation comes from. Right. So if you don't know where inflation comes from, how are you going to get rid of it? It's like a fireman doesn't know how fires start, doesn't know what, what makes wood burn. Well, how are you going to put out a fire if you have no idea you know, what, they're, what they're about or how they started? Right? Or, you know, you, so that's what we've got in, in, uh, in Powell. But of course, most people who are listening to this, you know, Powell talk about it, they don't, know what, they don't know anything about economics either. I mean, the level of understanding in economics in the U.S. and around the world is so abysmally low that people don't even know enough about it to know when other people don't know anything about it. And if you don't know, if you haven't, let's say, studied economics, you know, you didn't major in it or you get a degree in it, and you see some big guy like chairman of the Fed talking about it, you just assume he knows what he's talking about. Well, you'd be completely wrong. He has the faintest idea what he's talking about. None of these guys, in fact, pretty much everybody that has the word economist in their title knows nothing about economics. I mean, it really is amazing uh, to see. I mean, I know that because I know something about economics. You know, now I didn't learn it in in school. See, that's why I know so much about it because I didn't learn it through the university system, where you basically get all your economic common sense brainwashed out of existence, and you get, you know, spoon-fed a bunch of crap. So when you graduate, you think you know something about economics and you don't know anything. I mean, that's why I'm able to forecast so early what's going to happen, because I do understand economics. And the reason that so many other people are so surprised by all these things that happen is because they don't understand it. Now, I know I get a lot of flack online. People say, look, Peter, you're wrong because you were too early. You've been saying this stuff for years, and yeah, some of the stuff that you predicted is finally happening, but you're wrong because you said it would happen 10 years ago or 20 years ago, whatever. Yes, I was early. I admit that. I'm always early, right? But that doesn't mean I'm wrong, right? I'm an economist. I'm not a god, right? I, 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 I don't know exactly when things are going to happen. There's so many moving parts that... I can't predict. And you have all of these forces that are acting to delay the day of reckoning. But what I do know, and what I've always said from the beginning, is the longer the powers that be succeed in postponing that day of reckoning, the worse it's going to be. The more mistakes that we make along the way, the greater the imbalances that build up. So yes, we have a lot more to reckon with when that day arrives. And it's it's close upon us. Again, the only thing that really kept us going was the cheap money 
and the reserve currency status of the dollar. So we could borrow at low interest rates and we had willing lenders because the dollar was the reserve currency. Well, we're losing both of those props. Rates can't stay low because inflation genie is out of the bottle. And the idea that it's, you know, it's gone is, 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 is nonsense now. And the dollar's role as reserve currency is in jeopardy. The de-dollarization process has begun. And by the way, while I'm thinking about it, why doesn't anybody in the media, and again, I mean, I'm probably just asking a rhetorical question anyway, um, but why doesn't the media question Powell about uh, his inflation averaging? Because it was two years ago, it was in 2020, when inflation was about 2% as measured by the CPI. And so the Fed should have started to raise rates and do quantitative tightening because we were at the so-called 2% target, right? We were, we were there. We had finally made it to the promised land, right? The reason that we had 0% rates, the reason we were doing QE, according to the Fed, was that inflation was still below 2% and the target was two. And so we have to keep the pedal to the metal until we hit two. Well, we're at two, right? Instead of celebrating and saying, okay, we're there. Now we can take our foot off the pedal we can let rates go up. We don't need Q anymore. We, we, we got 2%. What did Powell do? Well, conveniently, the Fed came out and said, you know what? We came up with a new idea about our target. We don't just want to hit 2% each year and just look at each year individually. We want to look at all the years over a long period of time, and we want an average. We don't want to have a 2% target each year. We want all the years to average 2%. And since we just had several years where inflation was below 2%, now we need to have inflation a little bit above 2% because see, then it'll average 2%. Now, I said that was BS. The minute the Fed did that, I said, look, they're just making this up because they don't want to raise rates because they don't want to collapse the bubble. So they came up with an excuse while they can allow inflation to be a little bit above 2%. Now, of course, when they said that, they were thinking 2.2, 2.3, 2.4. But again, I also said that it was nonsense that we have to make up for the years that we didn't have enough inflation. I mean, that's asinine. So you're telling me that because inflation was 1.7% in the prior year, that we need 2.3 to make up for it? Like, hey, my cost of living didn't go up enough last year. It only went up by 1.7%. And so this year, I need to have my cost of living go up 2.3% just so I get the 2% that I'm supposed to get. Why am I supposed to get that? Why do I need an increase in my cost of living at all? You know, there are a lot of people who are struggling who would like to see the cost of living go down, right? Why not let that happen? No, no, the Fed wants to deliver a 2% increase. And if we are unlucky enough, right, to not have 2% inflation in one year, well, we're going to make up for it by having more than 2% the next year. Well, the point I'm trying to make is we've had, what, 9% one year or, year, you, know, at, you know, 6%, whatever it is. We're going to be so many years above 2%. If the Fed ever gets us down to 2%, which it's probably not going to do, what I'd like to hear somebody ask Powell is, okay, in 2000, you said that we no longer had a 2% inflation target. We had a 2% average inflation target. Well, now we've spent so many years 
way above 2%. Does that mean the Fed is going to target below 2%? Are you going to target 1% or half a percent for a while? Because we have a lot of catching up to do. If you want to average inflation back down to 2%, right? well, we're going to need to be way below 2% to bring that average down. You see, when, the, when it was below 2%, he wanted to average it up. But if it's above 2%, doesn't that mean we should average it down? Now, obviously, the Fed's not going to say that, right? It's heads they win, tails we lose when it comes to inflation. If inflation is too low, we need to average it up. But if it's too high, well, we never get to average it down. Well, if that's the case, is the Fed going to officially come out and say, that's not our policy anymore? We're changing back to a 2% target. We no longer care about average inflation rates. Of course, they never cared about it. It was BS then. Everything the Fed says is BS. They're just trying to postpone, delay the day of, uh, of reckoning. They don't want to admit uh, the mistakes that they've made and the disaster that awaits, or they don't even understand the mistakes that they made or the disaster that awaits. But either way, they're, they're either going to lie to us or they're not smart enough to tell the truth because they don't know the truth. But I'm going to tell you the truth. I understand economics. I'm not afraid to speak my mind and lay it out. And yeah, I'm early. I'm always going to be early. Anybody who has an understanding of this stuff is going to be early. That's, you know, all of these, the prophets, you know, the, the people that were, you know, uh, Cassandra's and not that I'm, you know, I'm not a prophet or anything, but the reason that some people are able to predict what the masses can't is because the masses are asses. They, 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 they're not seeing what's obvious. So then you get somebody who can see what's obvious. And according to everybody else, well, he must be some kind of Messiah, right? He's some kind of clairvoyant, you know, he, he was able to see into the future. No, he wasn't. He just understood the present, just that everybody else was blind to what should have been obvious. And that's the situation we're in right now. It's not that I'm so smart. It's that everybody else is so dumb. Anyway, that's it for today's podcast. Don't forget, take advantage, though, of this decline in the price of gold. I intend to. Maybe it'll be down a little bit more on Monday. This is very bullish news for gold. You want to buy gold. You want to buy silver. Talk to the guys over at Shift Gold uh, to get your gold and silver. And again, these mining stocks are looking super cheap. Uh, a lot of my other stocks continue to move up. The mining stocks continue a correction right now. It hasn't been that big a correction, but it is a correction. But you know what? They never went up nearly as much as they should have. Gold made a 52-week high. Gold stocks didn't even really get 20% of, didn't even get 20% below their 52-week high, and they're already collect, correcting. So there's a good drop there. So again, talk to the representatives at Euro-Pacific Asset Management, europac.com, to learn about our strategies that include or specifically um, focus on the mining stocks or check out the Euro-Pacific Gold Fund. It's available on all of the uh, discount brokerage platforms. You could buy that fund if you're willing to accept the risk. Maybe Monday will be a good day to buy it if you don't already own it, and it may be a good day to buy more if you do. Anyway, read the prospectus before you do, uh, and that's it for today. I'll be back again with more episodes of the Peter Schiff Show podcast live. Take care, everybody. 